Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Read the Chicago Reader to get up to speed on what's what in Chicago. Culture. Food. Arts and entertainment. Weekly concert listings. Weekly event listings. The environment. Travel. I can continue, but you get the point. And for all of you Chicago political junkies, raw weekly columns on real city politics from Maya Dukmasova and our very own Ben Jarofsky. The Chicago Reader. Free to the public in newsstands throughout the city and online at chicagoreader.com. Read it now and be a more informed Chicagoan. All right. Hour number two of your Ben Jarofsky show is brought to you in part by SEIU Healthcare, Illinois, Indiana, the Chicago Federation of Labor, and the Chicago Reader. Vinny J, take it away. Michael Udrich, uh, ace reporter for Jacobin in these times, other lefty publications, book author, uh, and also owner of the deepest pipes uh, in lefty Chicago has joined us from his apartment somewhere or other in the city. Welcome back to the show, Micah. What you don't actually know is I just have a voice filter on for this. I'm just trying to get lower than you. That's my goal here. Uh, Barry Barry White fans love it. Micah joins us uh, on the show. Um, Man, you got some pipes playing. All right. I am dying to talk to you about Nero Tannen. I took the deep dive. I was talking to Micah briefly about this. I opened up the show with it. I didn't really know much about her. The name was just vague. I was just vaguely aware of the name because I'm not really into Twitter and I'm not really into centrist Democrats. Uh, I have since discovered a lot about her. I've done the deep dive. I'm really dying to have this conversation with you, Micah, because you were into her long before it was fashionable. You knew all about this. Uh, But we're going to hold off because I want to talk first. So that's like a tease. We're going to do Nira Tandon, uh, taunting Bernie tweets in a little while, and also Republicans. Uh, she wants to be a, uh, a leading economic advisor to Joe Biden, so she's throwing it all away. But uh, anyway, let's talk about someone that I truly, uh, really do love and admire, and uh, a good friend of mine. I've been talking about her a lot in the show. Uh, the great Karen Lewis died, uh, was it a Sunday, I want to say? And uh, we've been mourning her ever since, since. And I thought it'd be great to bring Michael on. Because Micah sort of wrote the book on uh, Karen Lewis and the Chicago Teachers Union, at least uh, the strike of 2012, and that would be Strike for America. So, Micah, why don't you just talk a little bit about the legacy of Karen Lewis, and we'll get into some of the issues. Go ahead. Well, to start the conversation, I think uh, you have to say that if Karen was with us still, and we were, and she she heard us talking about her, and we were heaping all of this praise on Karen as this individual leader. She would she would tell us to pump the brakes a little bit. Uh, and this is a thing that I feel like the media, both in Chicago and nationally, did not understand about Karen Lewis at all because they didn't read my book <laughs> because I talk about this in the book. But uh, that Karen Lewis, she she was of course this enormous personality. I mean, she had this really you know once in a generation charisma, n- not like anything that has been seen on the labor movement anywhere in a very long time. Much less you know, in, in pol- it's also true of politics in general. That, that kind of charisma is a real rarity. Um, and we all know her greatest 
hits. We remember when she called Bruce Rahner a recruit to ISIS <laughs> and you know called Rom the murder mayor, all these kinds of things. But all of that stuff could, could confuse people sometimes. It, it distracted them from the fact that fundamentally, Karen Lewis was a labor leader who was dedicated to a, a small D democratic kind of teachers unionism that for her, the whole reason that she ran for the presidency of the Chicago teachers union after being a teacher for at least two decades, I think um, the whole reason she decided to run was because she thought that the model of unionism that was on offer from the Chicago teachers union before 2010, when she won the presidency was not up to the challenge of uh, fighting back against neoliberal education reform and, and an austerity and, and attacks on teachers and their unions. And she thought that the way to fight back was to do democratic unionism, unionism that engaged the members of that union that saw them as the ones who have to be activated and who are the, 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 so the agents of, of change. And it wasn't just Karen Lewis, you know, saying some funny stuff up on stage or, uh, you know, being having a personality that was big enough to go up against somebody like Rahm Emanuel. It was that her kind of unionism was about militancy, was about democracy, was about getting more people involved in her union. And that is that more than anything else, that is the, the, the legacy that she leaves behind this this model of democratic militant unionism that fights for the entire working class. That that, that was central to Karen Lewis. And uh, I feel like the 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 the. the, the focus on her and her personality uh, as fun as that is i'm happy to do that all day uh but but it, it risks losing that that singular contribution uh that she spearheaded uh within the chicago teachers union yeah you know the last time you're on the show you're talking about another book you wrote called bigger than bernie about the uh how the movement was bigger than bernie sanders a very similar theme here that you're striking micah with uh karen lewis uh and uh and Democracy, uh, democratic unions. Talk about the impact as you see it on re- in a real love uh, and with real examples like uh, in West Virginia or Arizona of Karen Lewis's model. Well, before 2012, people like me, you know, I, I pay close attention to the labor movement, and every article about the labor movement is like the situation is bleak. The numbers are worse than ever. There's fewer percentage, smaller percentage of workers in unions than ever. Unions aren't going on strike. Unions are just weak, 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 weak. And the 2012 strike was, uh, and I don't know if people in Chicago really wrap their heads around this enough. I mean, it was an event of major national importance to the entire labor movement and certainly to the entire, uh, all, all teachers unions and, and rank and file teachers of all kinds. And what has happened since 2012, uh, since that strike in 2012, was that this, you know the CTU provided this example that you can actually fight these neoliberal reformers who want to attack your union and, and uh, attack public schools, and you can win. And there is no teacher strike wave that kicked off all around the country, and it's still we're still in some ways in the midst of without the Chicago Teachers Union and without. The, the kind of teachers unionism that Karen Lewis and the rest of her caucus, the caucus of rank and file educators, uh, put into practice after 2010. So uh, as a concrete example, uh, West Virginia, folks remember in 2018 was where uh, things really popped off unexpectedly in this very uh, red and anti-union state. And these teachers uh, organized this incredible strike that, that put every single county in all of West Virginia, the, the teachers were on strike. And, it, uh, we've learned from journalists who have interviewed these teachers 
Eric Blanc, who's a good friend of mine, wrote a book called Red State Revolt about this teacher's strike wave. And the West Virginia teachers were studying the lessons from Chicago. Uh, they were re- they re- read my book. They read other things that had been written about the CTU. They they saw they they were they were very actively studying this model uh, and put it into practice. And, and what they're doing the same is true in Arizona. In Arizona, literally, there were there was at least one teacher, Rebecca Gorelli, who. Uh, was a CTU member and had gone on strike in 2012. And then she moved to Arizona later. And then she ends up playing this important leadership role in the Arizona strike of that year. And likewise in Los Angeles, the United teachers of Los Angeles uh, went on strike. Uh, what was that? I think early 2020 uh, and that union, just a direct application of the models uh, of the, of the, the, the uh, lessons from the, the CTU. I mean, and if you ask them, if, if you watch what they're doing, it's very clear. I mean, they, they had reform leadership come in that changed their union. They did the exact same kind of stuff that the CTU did. So CTU under Karen Lewis uh, affected this real sea change in the American labor movement as a whole and within teachers unions or even teachers who don't have unions uh, in particular. Uh, and, you know, Karen and CTU's contribution to that can't be overstated. All right. Uh, we're going to get into the contradictions of West Virginia a little bit, but uh, don't for, let's not uh, let this in conversation end without getting to that. But I want to uh, touch on something, um, get your thoughts on this. Uh, one of the reactions that I see so often in, in Chicago, uh, not only in the editorial pages and columns, uh, but in the uh, rhetoric of uh, centrists that I know, a lot of Northsiders tell me this, uh, is that they're sick and tired of the Chicago Teachers Union always making demands. And they're sick and tired of the Chicago Teachers Union raising the issues not directly related to the classroom. Like, why are you talking about police brutality? Or why are you talking about uh, overall uh, budget cuts or guns control or anything else? Stick to the classroom. In fact, when they went on strike for more nurses, the uh the editorial pages of both downtown papers said, shut up, take your raise and go back to the classroom. Forget the nurses. OK, uh, so what's your response to that, Micah? What how how um, how far in your humble opinion should teachers unions go in terms of connecting uh, their educational issues uh, to larger issues? Well, unions in general, their main task is to <clears throat> fight for their members, right? The people who pay them dues, they have to fight for them to get better wages, get better benefits, you know, make sure they, they have due process when they get fired, stuff like that. And that's good to have in our society. That means that we have less inequality. Workers get more of a share of the income of society and everything else. That's good. But there's a way of doing unionism that is not just about what you can get for yourself, but you use your union to fight for the entire working class. So you say, I don't just want to make sure that the people who pay dues to the Chicago Teachers Union get their raises that they're supposed to get. I want to make sure that the students we serve are living in safe communities. I want to make sure that the families we serve are living in affordable housing. I want to uh, make sure that they have enough nurses in the classroom. And so all of that is about uh, advancing a kind of unionism that's rooted in a vision of, of fighting for for everybody fighting for the vast majority of society. Uh, and, you know, maybe some of your friends on the, on the North side, who I assume you're referring to sort of like wealthier liberal types might uh, be annoyed by that. But every time there is a, 
a strike or talk of a strike, you know, there's polling that's done. I remember in 2012, the Tribune did a poll uh, during the strike itself at the moment when Chicago parents were being put out by this strike. They said, you know, do, who do you support in the strike? Do you support the teachers? Or do you support Rahm Emanuel? Overwhelming support from CPS parents for the union over Rahm Emanuel. So maybe the, maybe the wealthy people on the uh, wealthy white people on the North side aren't big fans, but it seems to be playing pretty well in places like Bronzeville and Austin and little village because the, the polls show that people actually support this, this agenda that the CTU is carrying out. Oh, I could tell you right now, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you this. I have lived on the North side for many, many years. And uh, there is a North side type that cannot stand the Chicago teachers union. And I hear from them. Uh, well, I you hear from them in your column, right? What's that? You write about them in your, in yeah, your column. Yeah, I just wrote about uh, that's a, well, that was a subset. I just wrote a column about this. There's a subset of North siders. And maybe this is greater than the North side, but I just hear it from the North side. And I heard this a lot in 2012. This has to do with Karen. This obsession people have with weight. You know, and I'm talking to you, Northsiders, you're weird. Okay, you got this weird obsession with weight. You just got to confront it. I know you're feeling good about yourself because you're in good shape. You go jogging, do your little yoga. Okay, you know, you feel really good about yourself. And then, but they would say, I'm on a tangent here. I'm like, I apologize, but you triggered me. Uh, I, I set you up for it. You set me up. They'd be like, Ben. You know, I know you really like her a lot. She's your friend and everything, but you kind of admit the teachers could have a better looking or representative. <laughs> Guys are so weird. Okay. Sorry. Didn't, I, I just had to say that, Micah. I had to get it off my chest. Okay. This obsession that certain Northsiders, they, they like to go jogging. They think they're so virtuous, like it's a virtue or something, man. You just happen to have, I don't know, you're lucky. All right. Whatever. I don't Sorry, I didn't mean to go there. Yes, they have this obsession. They don't like teachers that stand up for themselves. How deep do you think that is? I know there's so, I read it. It certainly seems to be like have the um, the majority of the voice that I read around me all the time. You know, uh, I don't see many voices in mainstream Chicago that stand up for the teachers when the teachers take action. It's, it's usually at best... Well, you know, they I, I can I can sympathize with them not wanting to go in the classroom and getting COVID, but really the children have to learn. You know what I mean? That's kind of like where we're at. So how deep do you think the love is for the teachers in the city of Chicago go? Well, I think it's been proven repeatedly to be very deep, not necessarily among the, the bougie white North side liberals, but among the vast majority of the city. I mean, as I was saying, the polls seem to indicate it over and over again. And uh, the CTU has emerged. I mean, the, the CTU created a new poll in Chicago politics, basically. Like there is now a coherent left poll in Chicago politics that the CTU is sort of at the heart of that includes other sectors of the labor movement. And, you know, it, you know, it includes people like democratic socialists on the city council and all of this stuff. But like the CTU is what, uh, what, what helped make that sea change happen. Uh, not, not solely, but like they play a huge part in that. Uh, and so, the fact that there are half a dozen members of the Democratic Socialists of America on the Chicago City Council, the fact that there is there are new possibilities, you know, progressive possibilities opening up in Chicago politics, uh, the fact that, that people keep coming out for the teachers over and over and over again and supporting the teachers. I mean, it, it seems to indicate to me that that support runs very, very deep and that 
clearly you don't get that kind of deep uh, uh, support for a, a union like CTU over the course of over a decade, um, if you know, it's not just tied up in one charismatic leader like a Karen Lewis, it's tied up in this kind of unionism that they have really pioneered in recent times. And it's really borne fruit for them and continues to bear fruit. Yeah, I, uh, I find it interesting uh, at that, um, at the peak of the confrontation over the, whether the school should be reopened, I'll hold off on taking a deep dive in that one. Uh, but at the peak of the confrontation, uh, Lori Lightfoot went on some national TV show. I can't remember which one, so excuse my ignorance on this. And she uh, likened the Chicago Teachers Union to the Fraternal Order of Police. And she said, I get along with all the unions in the city of Chicago. It's just the, the right-wing leaders of the Fraternal Order of Police and this union. She, I don't even think she would say it. She couldn't even get it out to this union. <laughs> this. <laughs> okay? You know, I'm like, how fair is that to like it? Yeah, that's how they do it. I mean, that's you know, you got well, you got Mega on the right, and you got Mike on the left, and like, oh my god, exactly. <laughs> really, what's that? What's yeah, mirror images. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah Mike is storming the Capitol. <laughs> Take back the steel. So, what's your attitude when you hear uh, Lori Lightfoot and others? You know, compare Mega. Uh, to lefties and to the teachers unions in particularly. Go ahead. Well, this is just par for the course. As a socialist, I'm used to this kind of thing. Um, you know, it, it, it is sort of funny to think about what the agendas of the respective far right and the far left are in this country, right? Like, I'm trying to get people free health care, affordable housing, free college tuition, stop bombing children in Yemen, etc. And my counterparts on the far right are saying that John Podesta and Hillary Clinton are drinking the blood of children in the basement of pizza shops and they're worship Satan together. And I mean, it's just like, what, we're talking about very different things here. Like uh, I'm just, I'm trying to get a decent world for, for every, for the vast majority of people so that people don't have to suffer. And uh, these people are storming the Capitol and like bring in, you know, they're white supremacists and they're talking about assassinating Nancy Pelosi and hanging Mike Pence or whatever. I mean, the, the, what, what, one of these, things is not like the other yeah i'm with you 100 percent uh and yet that equation that false equivalency is uh made all the time uh and i was a little disappointed to put it mildly uh to hear uh Lori lightfoot make it uh just a couple weeks ago now of course she's singing the new tune she loves jesse sharkey uh all right uh let's get to west virginia i told you this uh when we chatted this morning i'm baffled by this uh, you talked about the support that uh, the teachers union in West Virginia had when they went on strike. I think it was a wildcat strike. In other words, I, I think they just walked off without an official vote. That's what a wildcat strike is. Uh, and there was support without, without the, like legal authorization and you know going through the legal process. It was yeah, like in defiance of the law. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Uh, and so, uh, and yet that's a state. The only Democrat that can elect is Joe Manchin, uh, who doesn't want to raise the minimum wage. It's so bizarre, you know, and everybody else is right wing Republicans. They go. They love Trump. And I know you're like getting all ready to shame me for shaming voters. I can see it coming out of your eyes right now, Micah. So I'm going to really resist. 
but just help me understand this. What's help me understand the what seems like a contradiction between an outpouring of support for teachers who literally walk off the job in a wildcat strike, an illegal strike, as you point out, and then turning around and voting for Donald Trump. Please explain that to me. Go ahead. Well, it's a very good question. And to be clear, I share your frustration that people in West Virginia are voting for Donald Trump. I wish they didn't do that. It would, the world would be a better place if they weren't voting for Donald Trump or Joe Manchin for that fact, for that matter. Um, but people's ideas about politics I mean, most people are not a Ben Jarafsky or a Micah Utrecht and they go read a stack of, you know, columns and pour over a bunch of TIFF spreadsheets or whatever it is that you do with your time. Uh, they don't, they don't, they have lives, you know, they've got, they've got shit to do. Uh, and they, they don't make their political uh, decisions on a fully like rational way. And um, especially when it comes to like voting for a president, for example, because that seems very abstract to them. And, um, you know, they, I think they vote for uh, Donald Trump in part because they feel abandoned by a democratic party that has uh, not been interested in fighting for uh, like, you know, coal miners and other working class people in West Virginia. And so they're like, well, these people don't seem to care about me. So I guess I'm going to go with this Yahoo over here. It can't, can't be worse than the alternative. But the reason why people like me care so much, socialists care so much about strikes is because strikes are different. They're like different political phenomena. I mean, you can be a MAGA teacher, you know, you can you can vote for Trump and uh, have all kinds of reactionary ideas. But uh that, are, that, as I said, are based on pretty abstract principles, you know, little pieces of information and feelings that you picked up here and there. But then you go to work and you're disrespected by your principal. If you're a teacher, you're, you know that you're underpaid. Uh, you feel like you're not getting the kind of support that you need at the job. And so that material reality of your day-to-day existence at work as a teacher uh, dr- you know, drives you to think, well, this is, this is messed up. I mean, like I'm, I'm, I'm not a socialist or a, a, a liberal or a working class militant or anything, but I just don't think it's right that I'm getting treated that way. And so those, those material conditions drive you into taking action, uh, like going on strikes. Uh, even if you think you're a, as I said, a MAGA voter, you're a Republican, whatever. And that experience of struggle, uh, has the, the potential, I mean, it's the best way to change people's minds about politics, change people's ideas. That doesn't mean that they come out on the other end of the strike, like uh, voting exactly as Ben Jarafsky would like them to. <laughs> but, uh, but you know, th- but it is through that act of struggle that they get transformed. Their ideas about politics get uh, transformed. So that's why people like me are, are, are always, it's not that we're not frustrated with with uh, people who are clearly, you know, voting for, pe- for people like Trump who, who they really shouldn't be voting for. But that if we think that we're going to transform their ideas, which we desperately need to do. We desperately need to win those people back away from Trump and Trumpism if we're going to have a decent society. The way to do it is not through like wagging our finger at, at how awful they are. It's through engaging them on issues that are actually of, of, of serious importance to them and maybe even through them uh, taking action like going on strike. And that, that, that is how they'll, they'll come around. Mm. All right. Well, uh, we'll see. I, uh, I urge everybody. I had, to, I, I told you this before. I had a very similar conversation with the great Mindy Iser, uh, in these times writer, a friend of yours, uh, on this very subject. And I, I, I understand that it's not a very, um, 
what effective way to win people over is to go, what an idiot you are. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. I mean, you pointed that out. Uh, but at least when I, you know, uh, you're voting against your own interests uh, time and time again. Uh, but I, going back to Karen Lewis, I do believe that uh, it was bigger than schools. I'll put it that way. You talk about bigger than Bernie. And when Karen Lewis came on the scene in 2012, uh, the way I've been saying is she liberated Chicago. <laughs> because she showed Chicagoans, oh God, here I'm going. I feel the I feel the shaming Chicago coming over me, Mike. I'm really going to resist it. But Chicagoans are like so so sheepish when it comes to mayors, you know. And they were like that with Mayor Rob big time in those first two years, and they're so afraid to, to defy him. And they were like, uh, Daly was the same way. They were like that with Daly, and she showed them, hey, you know, the. The sky is not going to come crashing down if you criticize a mayor. You know, if you stand up to a mayor, you can do it. And all those city council, all those aldermen, Michael, you were here in 2012. They were hiding under their desk. They were with Rob. There were four. Stacy and I counted four when Stacy was on the show the other day. Four, Micah. That was it. Four aldermen out of 50. In a I didn't know that's shocking. I know. Showed up, stood with the teachers. Four of them. The rest of those 46 cowards were hiding under a desk. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to, uh, can't get too close to Karen Lewis. Let me call her up. Now, Karen, don't tell Ron I called you, but I really like it. <laughs> That's how they do it, man. Uh, don't. Then they would deny it. I never call her. So, uh, I think she liberated it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, yeah. That's how I view it. Uh, and I do, re- I do respect the fact that uh, I do appreciate the fact, despite my cynicism, uh, or skepticism, I should say, that we have how many six lefties in the city council now? Isn't that? Well, what we, it is? we've, got, we've got six, and then there's a, a larger swath of people who are sort of sympathetic to what you know, the people who are affiliated with like CTU and United Working Families and people like that. So yeah, there's a there's a certainly a growing number of people who are willing to buck the status quo in the city. Yeah, All right, I'd say six hardcore lefties and about six want to be hardcore lefties in the Chicago city council. So, you know, well, that's about a dozen more than we used to have. So that is correct. <laughs> that is correct. Uh, so I, a lot of love for Karen Lewis on my part. And I hear what you're saying. It's bigger than uh, Karen. Uh, but she was there at that moment. Uh, I can only think, you know what I'm saying? She was like right there. She took the challenge. She didn't back down. She pretty much gave up her life for it. When you think about it, you know, so yep. Got a lot of love for Karen Lewis, uh, as everybody knows. All right, let's move on to uh, somebody I didn't really know much about until yesterday. And boy, boy, was I missing out. Uh, <laughs> Nira Tannen, what a character. Uh, Nira Tannen uh, wants to be uh, the, uh, what, the Office of Management and Budget, big time. Uh, economic advisor uh, to President Joe Biden. President Joe Biden uh, wants her uh, to be the head. And uh, as such, she had to go for a confirmation hearing for the budget committee, which is chaired by one Senator Bernie Sanders. (laughs) And Neera Tannen has been just like uh, fighting Bernie Sanders supporters for the last five years on Twitter. Since I don't look at Twitter, Micah, I missed all this. So why don't you just fill us in a little bit? Because I know you've been following this. You know a lot about this. Go ahead. Well, Ben, this 
the story of Nira Tandon is a, a warning to people like you who are like, oh, maybe I should get on Twitter. Maybe I should use this thing more often. And then you look at what she said and you're like, oh, wait a minute. That's what happens to you when you use Twitter. It's just, it's it's rotted her brain. I mean, it's like Trump. It's like, you know, she's not as politically reactionary, certainly as Trump, but it's she has the Twitter brain. And, you know, as somebody who has gotten a few symptoms of getting Twitter brain a couple times in my life. I have to tell you that you don't, you don't want to get that kind of brain. You want your brain to stay healthy. You don't, you don't want to get an infection with that. So, um, you know, she's, I mean, she, she was the head of the center for American progress, which is the most important liberal think tank in America. I suppose I should disclose that I worked for a year as a contractor for, uh, for the center for American progress as a writer for their, um, youth publication called generation progress. Uh, so, I did not know that. Yeah. How long ago was that? That would have been in 2011. Uh, I remember I reported on the Wisconsin Capitol uprising for them. Um, but, uh, but, you know, that was, that was just sort of this, like youth. they had this youth publication, but the main thing that they do is write policy uh, for, you know, this sort of centrist Democrats like uh, Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. I mean, they, they are the main policy shop in America uh, for the, the agenda of the, the mainstream Democratic Party. And what I've always found so fascinating about Neera Tandon as a figure is that she works for the most important think tank in a, a liberal think tank in America uh, is the head of it. And yet she somehow never stops tweeting. It's like, what <laughs> is that her whole job? Is that, is that when you're the head of the most important liberal think tank in America, is it your job to just tweet for 24 hours straight? I don't, I, it's incredible. Uh, where can I get one of those? Jobs? That sounds easier than my job. I want to, I want somebody to, to make me the head of a think tank where I can just tweet incessantly and never, never stop. But she, so she was just very, um, I mean, she's antagonistic to Bernie Sanders and to Bernie Sanders supporters, loved pushing the narrative of the of the Bernie bro. But it, what was interesting about the hearing uh, that Bernie Sanders was sharing the other day uh, was that he, in typical Bernie fashion, was less interested in parsing like Tandon's personality and more interested in asking her some very pointed questions like, for example, Cap is receiving enormous amounts of funding from this, this, and this corporate source, uh, will that impact your, uh, decision-making, uh, if, if you, if we appoint you to this position? I mean, he, he didn't seem as interested in, in, you know, fighting the battles of, from 2016 Twitter, uh, when Neera Tandon was really, you know, at the height of her, <laughs> at the height of her tweeting powers. Um, and that, that's really the question that we should be asking about her. I mean, not only in terms of the corporate donations to her think tank, which is supposed to be a liberal think tank and yet gets all of this money from these corporate sources, but also has very close ties to uh, Bibi Netanyahu, the prime minister of, of Israel, or, or not close ties, but has has you know invited him to uh, speak at CAP and uh, has been uh, you know not particularly great on many issues like foreign policy. There's a famous incident uh, when the Podesta emails were leaked in 2016. Uh, where she wrote an email uh, saying that I believe that Libya should compensate America for uh, for taking its oil or something like that. I mean, just, this is not a particularly <laughs> this is someone who who is is one of the most prominent liberals in America, and yet uh, ha- makes some very uh, very disturbing uh, and certainly not progressive arguments about what we should do on anything ranging from healthcare to foreign policy. Well, I, I understand your point uh, that that is more important. But let me go back to uh, Twitter brain uh, for a moment. We'll get you know we'll get to the important stuff first. Let me, let me have dessert before I eat the uh, main course. 
so you said something Twitter brain and I wrote it down. I'd never heard that before. I don't know if you just made that up right now, or is this another thing I don't know about, about Twitter? Uh, like this is a standard line, but whatever, either you made it up now or it's a standard line, explain what you mean by Twitter brain. Well, there are many aspects to uh, Twitter brain. Uh, if you feel you are uh, experiencing symptoms of Twitter brain, you should see your doctor immediately. <laughs> uh, if you're but, on Twitter for more than four hours. Uh, sorry. Four hours, Ben, that's a low bar, I have to say, for some of us. Uh, you're, you're probably correct, but yeah, that's a low bar. Um, well, you know, Twitter is a place. Twitter's, Twitter's a fun place. I spend a lot of time on Twitter. Uh, I, as I told you earlier, I recently deleted it from my phone because I realized that I, too, was suffering from Twitter brain and that I had to extricate myself a bit from it. Uh, now I just use it when I'm working basically. Um, but it's a place where people get, I mean, the, the incentives of the thing are such that you get rewarded for being bombastic, for picking fights with people, for blowing up differences that you have with other people out of proportion to, you know, do what people call dunking on people. Um, you know, it, it rewards sort of like, useless and and uh, vicious conflict uh, and, it, and it it does not reward sort of like rational and calm discourse um, and uh, it, it it I mean I know in my own life I've found myself the times when I've in my in like real life found myself looking at something and thinking like oh how could I turn this into a good tweet and I was like oh I'm, I'm like rewiring my own brain in real time to make it fit for Twitter uh, and that really disturbed me and so uh, that's a thing to be avoided but uh, of course you get rewarded in American society we had we just got rid of a president who tweeted his way into the presidency so uh you get that, that's the whole problem you get rewarded for this bad behavior on the internet you rack up twitter followers you can get more influence you can put yourself on the radar etc um so that that's a real problem that we have in not just our politics but in the society in general and i anything you know the short of and you may, you'll not be shocked to hear a socialist say this, but short of like nationalizing Twitter, making it into like a public resource, it's hard to imagine how this is going to change because of course, social media companies like Twitter benefit from this. We all get addicted to it. We get these like dopamine hits all the time uh, because when, when, when you do the dunk on somebody, when you're rude to somebody, when you really stick it to them, that's when you get the, the followers and the retweets and all that stuff. And, it, uh, and so you spend more time on it. And obviously companies like Twitter know that and they want you to stay on it so that they can make more money from you tweeting. Um, so short of taking this thing, which is now an essential part of the public square in the world, right? Like this is where we go to talk about current events and everything else. Um, so it's, it's, it should be a utility, like a, like a public resource that we're all using. But as long as the way that it's set up is governed by the profit motive, you know, get, making CEO Jack Dorsey richer, um, we're not going to be able to like restructure it in ways that don't rot our brains. All right. Well, let's talk about that a little bit. Now we're on a, something interesting uh, a tangent here about uh, Twitter brain. Uh, Donald Trump was allowed to use Twitter to rise through the uh, Republican primary to, to become the leading Republican. Then he was allowed to use Twitter uh, in his fight against Hillary Clinton. And then he was allowed to, to like double down uh, for four years as the president tweet and use Twitter to just uh, 
fight anybody who dared to differ with him. And by the way, I just want to point out one thing on a tangent. And having said all that, uh, Nira Tandem outtweeted Donald Trump by 30,000. I read this, somebody had discovered today. I never even knew. 30, she tweeted 88,000 tweets. That's like beyond Twitter brain. It's like, <laughs> Double Twitter, 88, I'm like, 88,000, that's a lot of tweets. I mean, I can do the math, but wow. She was up at one point, I'm going to tangent with it, a tangent. This, I tell you, I, this is me. I, I, I caught up with this, like uh, an hour I spent reading about this, maybe 45 minutes. She was up, there was one Twitter, twi- uh, Twitter exchange where she was up and here was going, Nira, you're responding to a graduate student on Twitter at 1.40 in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> that's some sick really weird stuff i kind of wonder about her you know what capacity to be this enormously important <laughs> economist all right uh, but let's put that aside you can imagine bernie being like, uh miss tandon are you planning on uh sleeping through the night as you hold this <laughs> office or will you be tweeting and as your position of the head of the budget office it's actually not a bad bernie imitation um but anyway so the point is if I'm following you, the socialist analysis, and I think it's a good one, Twitter put up with Donald Trump because they're making money off of him. Of course, yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, he Donald, Donald Trump was great for business. I mean, all of media said that, right? There was the, what was it, the CEO of CBS, I believe, who said something about, you know, Donald Trump is awful for America and great for CBS because people were tuning in. It was a ratings bonanza. And uh, people, you know, every, every tweet he would make would sort of dominate the news cycle. And, yeah, that made uh, these social media moguls very wealthy uh, from all of the engagement that he was uh, spurring. And so again, when that is the, uh, the, when those are the incentives and that's how the social media platform is set up, we're never going to move towards a, a healthier way of uh, using these platforms. It's, it's going to continue to be, it's going to continue to rot our brains. All right. Well, let me ask you this. And I agree with you hundred percent. My, my line, I've always had utter disdain for Twitter uh, and my, my rule was once you reach the age of 50, you should be prohibited from going on Twitter because it's sort of like a younger person's thing. So I noted uh, in my research that Nira uh, Tandon is now 50, 50 years old. So that's it. There it goes. Kick her off. Trump should have been kicked off like, well, I can't do the math almost 30 years ago. That's how ancient he is. Well, but Ben, I have to tell you, you're a little behind here because like Twitter is, you know, Twitter's for like people like like me, like getting older. I'm in my thirties now. I'm 33. Like the zoomers, they're like on other stuff. They're doing TikToks. We got to get bet on TikTok. That's what we need to get. <laughs> that sounds like a drug. Get bet on TikTok. <laughs> See what weird stuff he does. Uh, but uh, uh, going go back to the Twitter, the larger discussion to you in your humble opinion as a socialist believe that we should get rid of the protection uh, that Twitter enjoys and Facebook enjoys from being held accountable for the nasty, libelous, slanderous, contemptible stuff that people post on it. So if Donald John Trump could be held, uh, or if Twitter could be held responsible for the uh, stupid lies that Donald Trump puts on there, uh, that may force them to uh, put aside their, uh, well, they may force them to have different financial interests much as we're seeing these lawsuits against Fox TV by these election companies as having an impact on their coverage of Donald John Trump's uh, claims that the election was stolen from him that he just made up. Do you 
a socialist, Micah, do you think uh, that Twitter and Facebook should lose their protection uh, from uh, libel lawsuits? Well, no, I mean, I, I'm a socialist, but I, I believe in very firmly in some of the basic liberal values of free speech. I, I, I'm very nervous about what will happen as uh, we, we become more comfortable with like government crackdowns on basic free speech. Um, and I know for myself that like, uh, even though, as we've already discussed, I am not the same thing as, you know, QAnon person or a MAGA person, but, um, I know that, that these people will come for me. They'll do the, the, the fake both sides they'll say, well, we're going to, and, and Twitter and Facebook have already done stuff like this, where they say, we're going to crack down on QAnon. And then also just to show that we're fair, we're going to crack down on these like fringe lefty people over here. And, uh, you know, they haven't, they haven't, I mean, my magazine Jacobin is still standing, but we, we regularly get prevented by Facebook, for example, from just running basic ads on Facebook for subscriptions to our magazine. And I am pretty sure, I mean, it's impossible for us to fully find out, but I'm pretty sure that, uh, that is out of their sort of overzealous, uh, attempt to make sure they're not just seen as cracking down on the right. They also want to be seen as cracking down on the left. And, uh, I don't think it's like, it's not purposely nefarious. It's just like, they've got, you know, algorithms set up to catch stuff like what we, we publish, which is not advocating violence or anything like that, but, but they, they catch us and they like, you know, prevent us from, from doing our ads on Facebook, which is like our lifeblood. I mean, that's where we get, I think almost the majority of our traffic on our website comes through Facebook. Um, so we're just at the mercy of these people. And I, I think that the, I mean, we can talk about what in the short term we do need to do. I mean, my, I, I I'm up in the air on some questions of like how clearly there needs to be something done about QAnon. This stuff can't just be allowed to run amok. Um, this kind of ultra libertarian ethos that the Silicon Valley type social media companies have had this long has led us to this, uh, this, this, this horrible place that we're now at as a society. Um, but I, I think as long as these are, these are private companies that are exist to make profits for a relatively small number of people, that's why we're going to be stuck with this fundamental problem of, uh, you know, out of whack, uh, incentives for how we engage in social media, engage with each other. Well, I, this is not government intervention. This is merely taking away government has already intervened. Government protected Twitter and Facebook for the consequences of what people put on them when they allowed, gave them immunity from lawsuits, libel lawsuits. So government has already intervened in the marketplace. I'm, where are my free market champions? <laughs> oh, they're all hiding under the table with the aldermen. You know what I mean? <laughs> where, where are you guys when I need you freaking libertarians? Never around. Libertarians were nowhere. Absolutely nowhere. All those years I was trying to get reefer legalized. Where were my libertarian friends? <laughs> they do want to hit the law and order types. I'm sick. Anyway, well, you, you can't hold you can't hold that against them though, Ben. They they've always been for legalization. Yeah, not that loud. Well, no, yeah. loud. They're like, that's like that's how they show they're cool. They're like, oh hey, you know, hey kids, we'll we'll give you legalized weed because we we are not like your mom and dad. We're gonna let you do whatever you want. Never seen a libertarian show up at any kind of city council here and gone for legalization. Never. But anyway, neither here nor there. I want to get back to. Uh, by the way, central inconsistency of the which you that that, that riff you on was really brilliant because you're right uh, you're absolutely correct the right wing has successfully um 
played the refs with the Zuckerberg crowd and uh, uh, oh, Dorsey yeah. and Twitter by saying, oh, you're so prejudiced and biased against us. Oh, yeah. And Zuckerberg's like bending over backwards to let them. Zuckerberg all of a sudden is a First Amendment. I, I, I cannot interfere with anything. I'll put uh, Holocaust deniers uh, on Facebook. And then Marjorie Taylor Greene, I don't know if you saw the QAnon congresswoman from Georgia when she was def- trying to defend herself uh, about believing in QAnon. She goes, I was allowed to believe she was blaming Facebook for putting, allowing her to read stuff on Facebook about QAnon, Micah. And then she turns around and says, oh, but Facebook is prejudiced against right-wingers. So they're inconsistent to the day. Go ahead, Micah. Well, you remember that this, you're, you're exactly right to talk about how the right has successfully played the refs. But that's a very old story in this country. They've done that with mainstream media for a long time, right? The way that they convinced everybody that all of mainstream media has this liberal bias, that somehow conservatives are like this oppressed minority in America, and they're constantly uh, being oppressed by these these evil liberal media companies, which in, when in reality, they're just they're corporate media outlets that are uh, have, you know, answer to corporate interests just the same way that everything else under capitalism does. But, but that's what they did for decades. And they helped spread this myth that there was this liberal media that was silencing their voices. I mean, they're very good at this. They've been doing it for a while now. Yeah, you're absolutely correct. Uh, all right. We will uh, close with a little impeachment talk. Uh, the, when you were on the show, it was before the first impeachment. I can't remember when it was. I've lost track of time. Uh, you were you were a little. You're not really strong on the impeachment bandwagon. I think I think I, you actually had a debate with a, a centrist Democrat. I think you were on the show with David Seaton. Uh, I want to say there was like a debate as to whether we should impeach. Anyway, uh, what's your thoughts about this current impeachment? Well. Um... I, I, my thoughts have changed a little bit as events have unfolded. Um, I mean, the first time around, uh, one of the things that I thought was that made impeachment a dead end was just how narrow the whole scope of what they were arguing over was. I mean, it just, it seemed like it wasn't going to go anywhere. It seemed like they wanted a kind of one weird trick to uh, get Trump out of office that was always doomed to fail. In this case, we've got what Trump, did inciting this riot at the Capitol. Um, I understand the argument that, uh, that Trump, you know, we, we can't let someone like Trump get away with this it, for the, in the same way, even though it's, it caused far less human carnage and catastrophe, but the Bush administration got to get off scot-free despite, you know, orchestrating one of the worst foreign policy blunders that, that, left much of the Middle East drenched in blood, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not over a million people dead from the war in Iraq. And there was no accountability for that. So um, I, I certainly want accountability for these people who do bad things because there's a long history in people just getting away with whatever. There's just complete, complete impunity for elites in this country. Um, so, so yes, I, I want to, you know, Lord knows Trump has a long list of crimes that he deserves to be uh, prosecuted for the, the problem is I just don't always I don't trust the Democratic Party as it currently exists to carry that out in a particularly uh, useful way. I mean, like some of the people in the squad, you know, like uh, Rashida Tlaib or talking uh, they were talking from the beginning. Right? you remember she said when she first got in office, she said, impeach the mf <laughs> uh, And somebody asked her about that, I think, today or yesterday. And she's like, well, I was right. <laughs> Why did you guys listen to me? Um, but. Uh, yeah, I, I, I suppose I, I support the, the efforts to, to hold Trump accountable, given the many evils that he carried out. Um, but 
I just don't trust the, a party that is still dominated by the near attendants of the world uh, to really carry that out in, in the best way possible. They don't have a particularly great track record in recent years, I have to say. Uh, well, by the way, I did uh, near attendant ever go after you in particular with one of her tweets, one of her 88,000 tweets. I don't think me specifically. Uh, in fact, sometimes I don't think she knew who I was. She she retweeted me a couple times, which I always thought was funny. She uh, like like in agreement with what I was saying. But uh, she did one time. I was looking for it yesterday, and she famously deleted several yes. thousand of her tweets before these hearings. So we can't find all of her greatest hits. But uh, one time at like four in the morning, she tweeted something. I believe, and again, I can't be one hundred percent sure because the tweets are gone now. But I believe she tweeted about Jacobin not supporting a policy of jobs guarantee. I I, I can't say with 100% certainty that's right. But she, she asked, why is Jacobin opposed to a jobs guarantee? Which is very bizarre because Jacobin has always written very positively about the demand of a jobs guarantee. And so... That morning, our founder, Bhaskar Sankara, woke up and saw that Neera Chandan was tweeting about Jacobin, and uh, he responded to her saying, uh, Jacobin supports a job guarantee. You know what else we support? Getting eight hours of sleep. Neera, <laughs> go to bed. That's, that's pretty funny. That's Twitter. That's a good line. You would do well on Twitter, Ben. You no. would good, deliver some zingers. I just, I'm not saying you should be on it. I'm saying you would do well if you just submitted yourself to Twitter, Brain. Yeah, well, that's that's not going to happen. 88,000 <laughs> tweets, by the way. And by the way, and I started the show by saying this, and I'll repeat it. Uh, come on. You put it out there. You believe it. You stand by it. This thing where, I don't know, this exchange where, um, uh, the, the John Kennedy, that's his real name, he's a senator from Louisiana, not the president who was shot in 1963. Uh, he said, you called Senator Sanders everything but an ignorant slut. All right, now he was being, you know, he's obviously she didn't call him an ignorant slut, but she felt compelled to deny. I did not call him that. <laughs> then she said, I must have meant them, meaning tweets, but I really regret them. It's like, come on, you said them, you did uh, mean them. You, you don't know, regret him. Go ahead. <laughs> what what you what you can't say about a Bernie Sanders is that he ever you know says stuff that he doesn't believe and then walks it back. I mean, Bernie has a as an almost perfect track record. He's of not you know putting his foot in his mouth on basically anything. Look, we all make mistakes. We all do things that we regret. So. You know, there's people I voted for, like, oh, really don't want to talk about that vote. Okay. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, but 88,000 tweets that you are now massively deleting and you've stopped, and all of a sudden you go, I regret them. No, my God. That's, you know what I mean? That's like a way of life that served one purpose. Now you're doing a different thing and it no longer serves your purpose. So it's like, uh, just ignore that. Uh, what is she, is she going to promise not to go back to Twitter when she's done being, maybe she'll be a great, by the way, director of the economy. You know what I mean? A year from now, I could have you on and go, whoa, who saw this coming? You know, I'm, try, I'm, tr I'm trying to do the math because how many words are in a normal tweet? Like 20, 30, 40 words. And that times 88,000. <laughs> how many words? My, my books were 30 and 50,000 words each. 
So she's written several books worth uh, yeah. of these tweets. It's pretty impressive. We're going to have to get Dan Biss out here to do the math. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, before we uh, allow you to leave, uh, what should people know about that you've written lately that you want to talk about that you want to promote? Micah, tell them. Well, I am the uh, deputy editor of this website or this magazine, Jacobin. I run the website, uh, jacobinmag.com, and you should read. We're, we're publishing about 50 new essays every week, so we got plenty of stuff out there for you. Uh, the paperback version of Bigger Than Bernie with a new uh, foreword that goes over everything that happened over the last year in American politics is about to come out next month from Verso Books. So it's called Bigger Than Bernie, how we go from the Sanders campaign to democratic socialism. And I don't know how much how much interest it'll be to your listeners, but I spent a big chunk of 2020 uh, reading the books of this guy, Mike Davis, who is a longtime yeah. socialist writer. And I read 11 of his books and I wow. wrote about 7,000 words about Mike Davis in the new issue of The Nation. Uh, the article, I believe, is called Mike Davis's Forecast. So that just dropped online two days ago and it's on The Nation's website. Oh, wow, and if, that's pretty cool. If anybody's interested in that, they can uh, check it out. Yeah, Mike Davis wrote a lot about LA. Yes, that's and, right. Uh, Vegas. Uh, wow, it's good stuff, Mike. Uh, keep up the good work and um, we should have you on more often than we do. It's always a pleasure talking to you, Mike. You know, uh, take care. Mike, I had a quick uh, favor to ask you, if you don't mind. Sure. What's that? Hell yeah, dude. Uh, our anniversary is coming up. Our two year anniversary. We're going to, you know, the podcast will be two years old on February 27th. And one thing I'm having our uh, guests do, uh, you know, like uh, when you listen to the radio and you're like, hi, I'm I'm, I'm Michael yeah, yeah. Jordan and you're listening to this. That. And we were wondering if you can give us like, hey, I'm Micah Utrecht. Uh, you know, I just want to wish the Ben Jaronsky show happy anniversary. And then I'll play it uh, for our anniversary special. How about that? Is that is- sure. I'll be happy to. Cool. I'll give you a countdown. Uh, and then just let her rip. Like I said, you know, hey, this Wait, is Micah. What's say it, yeah, say it again. Like, hey, this is Micah Udrig. Uh, You know, I just want to wish the Ben Jarosky show a happy uh, two-year anniversary. And, you know, just ad lib and say whatever you want. Wait, no, but what he said was he's going to give you a countdown. Right. And that's radio talk, uh, Mike. He may not remember. He's going to go three, two, one. <laughs> Look at this guy. Boy, he is. Where would it be without Ben? <laughs> what a seasoned <laughs> veteran. <laughs> All right. Tips, <laughs> countdowns. He does it all. All right. So I'm going to give you a countdown, and then you just go ahead and uh, give us a little uh, shout out. And uh, I appreciate you doing this. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. Hello, everybody. My name is Micah Utrecht. I'm the deputy editor of Jacobin Magazine. And I want to wish a very happy two year anniversary to the Ben Jarafsky show and uh, to Ben Jarafsky, Chicago's finest journalist. You know, there's a short list of the greatest Chicagoans of all time. Who do we have on there? We have Michael Jordan, Richard Wright, Ida B. Wells, Karen Lewis, Ben Jarafsky. He goes on that list. So happy birthday. Happy two year birthday to uh, you and the Ben Jarafsky show, Ben. Wow, that is really high praise, man. Those are my heroes. We do a we do a um, a bit on the show, not a bit, but I uh, I talk about it all the time. Uh, Monroe Anderson comes on. Uh, you may have debated Monroe once. Oh yeah, I've, I've been on two or three times uh, with him with Monroe. Uh, so we do our thing like the Mount Rushmore of Chicago. Okay. Uh, politicians. So four. There's only four you could do, and my four uh, have remained the same. Uh, Leon Dupre was a legendary uh, uh, radical alderman from Hyde Park. Right. Uh, I've got uh, Ralph Metcalf, the congressman in the '70s who turned against the Daily Machine and paid a price for it, but he he, he defeated them and really you know 
uh, gave a lot of inspiration to the black political movement. Uh, Karen Lewis is on my list for what she did, liberating Chicago in the in the 21st century. And of course, the greatest, in my opinion, the GOAT, Harold Washington. So those are my four. Harold, I should have said Harold. What are they doing? Yeah. yeah. yeah don't worry about it. That's, I, I was a, Ida, Ida B. Wells is pretty damn good, okay? <laughs> I'm not worried about it. So I know I'm catching you off guard here, but if you have to come up with four, who are your four? And is this Chicagoans of all types? Not just politics. Yeah, I have a labor leader. I mean, it's politics. It's politics, but I, I, I make Karen, you know, because she's so political. So uh, I can see you're thinking. So I'm going to allow him the moment. I mean, this I just dropped him. I mean, I gave Monroe about two hours head start, uh, so he was able to come up with his. So I know, uh, I know Dennis has the Jeopardy music over there somewhere. Yes, he's. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking you about. Know, right? My, my, oh, jeez. Oh, is this, is, okay. All right. You know what? We'll bring you back on in a month okay, if you remembered someone. So don't worry about it. The pressure's on. I, I would say, you know, Michael Jordan obviously has to go on there. I would say uh, Karen Lewis has to go on there. D- despite everything, this is a controversial statement I'm about to make. Kanye West might have to go on Whoa. there. I'm sorry, but he may, he may have to go on there. Okay. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and Harold, Harold, yeah. Harold should definitely go on there. That's a great list. And you know what? Uh, I, I'm, I, I give you credit for not throwing Kanye under the bus. I mean, he's had some flaky moments over the last two years, uh, but that was your guy. You loved him and his music spoke to you and you're not throwing him under the bus. So I give you credit for that. Uh, so uh, Michael Jeffrey Jordan, Kanye West, Karen Lewis, and Harold Washington, not bad. That's a pretty good Mount Rushmore. Uh, Micah, you take care. Stay safe and sound. We'll bring you back really soon. All right. Sounds great. Thanks for having me. All right, uh, Micah. D, you got any updates for us before you head out that door? Always having fun. Always having fun with Micah on the Ben Jarofsky Show. Good times. Hey, uh, yes, our anniversary show is coming up February 27th. Ben, I have the mayor. Mayor Lori Lightfoot is on the line. She would like to wish us a happy birthday. Mayor Lori Lightfoot. Hey, how's it going? How you doing? Wait, may- hello, mayor. Okay. <laughs> She hung up. A lot of uh, yeah, I voted for you. Okay, twice. <laughs> I did. Oh, but okay. We do have a random hipster would like to wish us happy anniversary. Random hipster. I've seen a whole lot of catfish. Okay. Uh, no gators yet. Though. Okay. Mm. Forgot to ask Mike about the gator. <laughs> I know. Next time. You completely forgot to ask him about the gator, dude. Come on, get with it. All right, uh, let's do the back half here. Two stories to talk about before we leave all of you for the weekend. Yes, that's right. No live show tomorrow. <laughs> Just as sad as you are. And I never in my life thought I'd be saying this, but <laughs> I'm going on a ski trip. So, <laughs> Jean Claude Dennis. <laughs> Watch out. By the way, Ro on the live stream chat, thank you for the ski tips. She says to move in a figure eight rather than go all the way down. I'll, I'll try that. I'll try that. Don't uh, do a, a somersault. I tried that when I was on the bunny hill. That's really like 
you know, just lose control and you start rolling down the hill and your skis come off. Oh, my God. Don't do that. Oh, okay. boy. All right. It's going to be a fun ski trip here. Uh, so, yeah, that's going to be going on. No live show. Uh, but we do have an interview with Kelly Cassidy for all of you to download. It'll be available tomorrow by 5 a.m. Go check it out. Subscribe to The Ben Jarofsky Show, all you live streamers, by the way, if you've yet to. Uh, give it a review. Five stars only. That'd be great. All right. Uh, now, I do have another ad from the Left Wing Progressive Group. Uh, and this ad uh, this literally came out of nowhere, a group called Tax March and their Relief Now campaign. We played an ad from them earlier, and oh boy, they were ripping Adam Kinzinger. We're going to play uh, some more of those ads. and uh, But first, Ben, a story that you wanted to discuss. This comes from the Sun-Times in Brett Chase. The headline reads, Alderman Garza calls for delay of relocated General Irons permit. Alderwoman Susan Sadlowski Garza is asking that the city delay issuing a permit to the relocated General Iron metal shredding operation on the southeast side while a federal civil uh, civil rights investigation is being conducted. Garza's announcement Wednesday comes seven days into a hunger strike initially staged by several activists, which has grown to at least six people. The protesters have asked the city to deny issuing an operating permit to a new facility at East 116th Street along the Calumet River because they say it will bring more air pollution to an already overburdened community. Uh, Garza said in an interview, quote, I commend these people. They feel like they're not being heard. No one should have to go on a hunger strike to get people to listen. That's the bottom line. This has gotten out of control. Ben, your thoughts. Well, my thoughts are that if uh, Alderman uh, Susan Lowski Garza is speaking out about it right now, it's a sign that Mayor Lori Lightfoot uh, may be uh, shifting gears uh, uh, on this. Uh, she may be uh, heading in a different direction. Uh, okay, just so folks know, we talked about this with Juanita Irizarry uh, when she was being interviewed. This is a very local issue, but it's a very important issue. It has to do with uh, where cities decide loud, noisy, uh, obnoxious, potentially life-threatening operations are placed. And this is not just something that happens in Chicago, it's something nationwide. So for years and years and years, this uh, shredding operation was on the north side of Chicago in an area that was rapidly gentrifying. The city, over about 10 years ago or so, decided, uh, uh, get get it out of there. We want to open that land for development. This is right across the Chicago River. Chicagoans, wake up, everybody, as Harold Melvin, the Blue Note, said, right across the Chicago River from uh, the Lincoln Yards, a TIF-funded mega project, which is kind of on hold because of the pandemic pandemic, but it's coming. So they took the loud, obnoxious shredding operation, which has existed in this area for scores of years, and they go, well, we got to put it somewhere. Let's just shove it out on the southeast side where working class people and poor people and black people and Hispanic people live. And, uh, you know, it was an act of convenience. They already moved the, uh, the garbage truck facility to the south side. Mayor Rahm did that when uh, he uh, it was getting Lincoln Yards off the ground. He called, and then he tried to dress it up like it was a great thing for the south side. Hey, south side, you're really lucky. We're taking the garbage trucks that they didn't want on the north side. We're giving them to you. And Chicago was, oh, sounds good to me. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, was that an impression of anyone in particular? Oh, sounds good to me. Me, if the mayor says so, it must be true. I read it in the tribute, Ben. Um, so now they're doing the same thing uh, on the southeast side. And there's been opposition to it. And uh, Sue Garza, Alderman Garza, Alderman Garza is a close ally of uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot. And Mayor Lori Lightfoot was um, championing this for a while. But now I get the sense that 
maybe too much for Mayor Lori Lightfoot to continue. And so Sue Garza is speaking out against it. Sue Sedlowski Garza. So I get a sense that you ask me for the wider political ramifications of this. Mm-hmm. It may mean that uh, Lori Lightfoot backs away from this. We'll have to see. Okay. Uh, and hey, can we put this on a list here of things to do in 2021? Uh, get Sue Garza back on this program. I've reached out. You know, she's busy. Uh, I love Sue uh, Sadowski Garza, the rock and roll alderman. She loves Tom Petty, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I re- also reached out to Scotty Wagaspack. These are all my old friends, but they're apparently really busy. I'm not going to say that my old friends who are now Lori Lightfoot uh, uh, loyalists don't want to come in the bench rest. I'm not going to say that, even though I may have said that. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's to how to that. not get them on the show when you do that. You know what I mean? <laughs> hey, man, you're still my friends. You guys, I mean, I'm not that kind of guy, like, throws away friends just because uh, I'm critical of your mayor that you love and you support. You know, we're still friends. I haven't changed. I'm the same guy. <laughs> you know that. You're all welcome back. I love you all. Hey, man, I, I love Nick Spasato. Nick and I don't agree on anything. But he stood with the teachers in 2012. I'll never, you know what I mean? Uh, that'll always mean a lot to me, so. You know, yeah. come on, guys. You're the same guy, and I'd say even a little quirkier since you've been in that attic for about a year. <laughs> I'm even weirder than I used to be. <laughs> well, you said weirder. I said quirkier, you know. Yeah. No, but that was nice of you to say quirky as opposed to weird. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, now, earlier today, I found a political ad out of nowhere. Huh? What the? We are nowhere near election season, and honestly, it came to me by surprise. So I grabbed the ad, and we played it right here on the show. It was an ad from a group called Tax March. Tax March, they have launched an ad campaign against four Republican members of Congress, including Congressman Adam, oh, I swear I'm not MAGA Kinzinger. So... Uh, we'll play that ad real quick, and we have more ads to play from Tax March. Ben, I did a little research, all right, and we'll uh, I'll let you know the research here. Let's hear this Kinzinger ad for those who may not have heard it. During this pandemic, the rich got richer, and the well-to-do are doing pretty well, because politicians like Adam Kinzinger reward them with tax breaks for private jets and yachts. But for the tens of thousands in Illinois out of work due to COVID, Kinzinger's a hard no on relief. With Adam Kinzinger, those with billions hit the jackpot. Those who need relief get jack squat. Tell Kinzinger <laughs> those good. out of work are out of time. That is good. Pass COVID relief now. That's good times. <laughs> that made me laugh the second time I heard it. Ben, how would you rate that ad out of five stars, by the way? Well, if it's a, I know nothing about this group. Okay. So if this is a, a MAGA group, Posing as a lefty group, I give it a negative 100. Oh, okay. It's a legit uh, lefty group, five. Well, I'm glad you're admitting the bias. Uh, so uh, I have the other ads here, all right? Like I said, I did some research on Tax March. Uh, like they said here, it's an ad campaign against four Republican members of Congress. I have three more ads to play, and it's the three other members of Congress, okay? So uh, they go across the country here. So we heard Illinois. That was Adam Kinzinger. Ben's favorite all of a sudden. Uh, now let's go to some other states here. Uh, ben, I have three states here. I have the state of Ohio, the state of Wisconsin, and Maine. 
Which would you like to hear first? Maine. I love lobster. Maine. Don't we all? Uh, in fact, I'll be eating lobster on my ski trip and drinking uh, a lot of champagne and having caviar as well because I'm bougie wow. now, guys. He's skiing. I'm bougie now. Well, at the same time, yes. <laughs> all right. So you said Maine. Let's hear the ad. I have a feeling it's going to be the same exact ad, but they've just inserted in a, uh, a new politician here. So let's hear it. And hey, cross your fingers. Hopefully we'll get to hear that uh jackpot jack squat line again so here we go to the state of maine the pain we're feeling couldn't be more personal the pandemic putting tens of thousands of mainers out of work doesn't get more local business owners struggling and scared but after susan collins and mitch mcconnell gave corporations a nearly 100 billion dollar tax break collins joined mcconnell to give them a 500 billion dollar bailout the corporate donors that gave Collins over $8 million get rewarded. Mainers pay the price. Tell Susan Collins, stop putting corporate donors ahead of Maine. Oh, wow. A completely different ad there. And Mainers. That's what you call it. <laughs> I, I did not know that. Hey, you know, I agree with, I must, you know, even if it is a MAGA group, I don't know anything about the crew. I apologize. I should have done my homework. It's really hard to do the homework. It was I just learned about this, so but I will do my homework after this. Uh, but even if they are a MAGA group, I can't argue with the message. D, I got to tell you, it's speaking to me, and it could be MAGA going. We know how to make Ben really go off the deep end. We'll speak to Ben. Says <laughs> they're a progressive group uh, in the uh, in the story from Shiacampos in Illinois. Oh, Politico. I didn't know. I, did. yeah, I, didn't, I missed that part. <laughs> I, I told <laughs> that wanted Trump to release his taxes. Uh, tax March, I'm assuming. I don't know. I just have the ads here, uh, but they do say it's a progressive group. Said it about three times on the show today. All right, let's yeah. hear. Okay, we got Ohio and Wisconsin. Which state would you like to hear next? Uh, for did it, Ohio. I want to, let's go to Ohio. All right, we're going to Ohio. The latest ad from Tax March. Ohio, we go. During this pandemic, the rich got richer. Oh, here we go. And the well-to-do are doing pretty well. See, billionaires have a friend in Rob Portman. He gave them billions in tax breaks for private jets and yachts. But for Ohioans who've lost a job, Portman gets stingy. He thinks it's too generous to help everyone who's struggling. With Portman, those with billions hit the jackpot. But those who need relief get jack squat. Yeah! Tell Rob Portman we can't afford to wait. Pass COVID relief now. There we go. I'm just noticing... That all of these Republicans, and by the way, the same ad can be used against every Republican in Congress. But I'm just noticing that so far, uh, these three Republicans are ones who might either have already voted against Donnie or might vote against. Just saying, D. I know, I know. I'm just throwing that out there. But once again, it's like, I'm with you 100%. I hope uh, you go after, let's see. Uh, the uh, Lindsey Graham, Mitch McConnell, you know, who else? Who are some of the real flag? Ted Cruz, you know, like the uh, old boy down at Josh Hawley in uh, Missouri, the real Trump flag wavers. Just saying, they just, you know, just just saying. Go ahead. Oh, we in got a, a lot of people on the live stream chat are uh, uh, liking this, uh, these ads here from uh, Tax March. Uh, we speak to me, that's for sure. We go to Wisconsin. Everybody's wondering, who's Wisconsin? Who's Wisconsin? Well, let's find out. Ben, please, no cheesehead references. 
Here's uh, the ad from Tax March. We're going to Wisconsin, everybody. During this pandemic, the rich got richer and the well-to-do are doing pretty well. Mm-hmm. See, billionaires have a friend in Ron Johnson. He gave them billions in tax okay. breaks for private jets and yachts. But for Wisconsinites who've lost a job, Johnson says we simply can't afford to help those who can't afford much of anything. With Johnson, those with billions hit the jackpot. But those who need relief, get jack squat. Repeat. Tell Ron Johnson we can't <laughs> afford to wait. Pass COVID relief now. I'm with now they want me over. Ron Johnson <laughs> is a big time Trumper. Loves Donnie. Waving that flag. So, you know, it's great. Well, the guy is speaking so uh-oh. Dude, it just dropped something. I don't know what it was. I hope it's not a phone. <laughs> Your camera's anyway. completely gone. Where did you go? Ben, are you there? <laughs> oh, it's the camera. Oh, my God. Oh, I don't oh, worry about that. Oh, <laughs> the camera. I can't see oh, you at all. God. What is your, by the way, D, could you imagine if we were doing this live on a camera? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You keep, hey, people, get ready. We're going to do this now. You know, Dennis, uh, you know, we're going to eventually do this. Dennis is slacking or something. Dude, your camera just fell on the ground. I know. I don't know where it is. Oh, Should boy. I go get it? No. No. Anyway. They won me over. They won me over with the Ron Johnson one. I got to admit, those were speaking. All each one of those, uh, three of them were the same. Basically, they just substituted the names. But th- for some reason, they they got a little more specific for Maine. Did you notice that thing? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, here, here, yes, I'm with them 100. percent Here, here, and there, there. That's your Ben Jarofsky show for today, February 11th. Ben, fix your camera. Uh, remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows. So much more. At, there we go. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my God. Oh. <laughs> hey, everybody. I know. I know. Live stream chat listeners. That was something else. Uh, okay. Remember, you can download previous Ben Jarofsky shows, Benny J bonus interviews, and so much more. ChicagoReader.com, wherever else you download podcasts. Uh, check it out. This weekend's Benny J bonus interviews. All right. We download. We have stuff available for download every single day, literally every day for the last two years. We're crazy, guys. All right. So go check those out. Remember, you can send us an email, BennyJShow at gmail.com, uh, social media at Benny J Show, B-E-N-N-Y, the letter J Show. And you can call us 708-658-4788. That number again is 708-658-4788. We would love to hear from you. All right. I want to thank Mike. I did a great job. Love having him on. I should not let so much time go uh, in between Mike's appearances. He's got a good sense of humor. And of course, I want to thank the man, the myth, the legend, the pride of joy of Alton, Illinois, who will be uh, beginning his skiing career uh, this weekend. He's going to become a champion Olympic skier. Probably do a little uh, snowboarding as well. Uh, <laughs> the man that, uh, what was this, that, that speeder, there's a skier named Spider something or other. That's the spider skier and Micah Call, <laughs> the doctor. Give yourself a raise, take it out of petty cash, stay safe on the slopes. See everybody on Tuesday. Take care. Pandemic, the rich got richer and the well-to-do are doing pretty well.